Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Law of Code podcasts. I'm really excited to share this episode with you. My guest today is Bill Richards. Bill is an attorney and partner at Richards Moskowitz PLC, a boutique Arizona law firm. Bill launched in 2020 along with Karen Moskowitz as a new type of firm focused on carefully training attorneys and staff to focus on the client learn first about their story, needs, and goals, and then deliver first-rate advocacy. The firm has already doubled in size in the two years since it's opened its doors, and I'm looking forward to learning a bit more about how he's done that. We're also lucky to be joined by Gideon Esekoff, an attorney at Richards & Moskowitz. Gideon represents businesses, government agencies, and individuals, and studies the legal and social implications of emerging technologies, including artificial intelligence and blockchain. Bill, Gideon, welcome to the Law of Code podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you for having us, Jacob. Um, We're excited to get to talk about what we think are some exciting new emerging issues in the law. We're excited to learn from you a little bit along the way here, too. Yeah, seconded, Jacob. It's great to join you today. I think this will be a fun one. I'm really looking forward to learning about the litigation side because I think corporate lawyers can learn a lot from litigators in that they see what goes wrong on the back end. But let's start where we typically start, which is the Genesis block. Bill, could you explain where you were first introduced to Bitcoin and what you initially thought of this digital asset? Yeah. So let me start by just giving you a a little bit of background that I have been involved for virtually my entire career in securities related or investment related litigation. It's been a piece of my portfolio. So when I first heard about Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, it really came through popular media. And the first time I ever talked to anyone in person about these issues, it always seemed to be someone who was much younger than me, and especially the folks that we had working at our law firm who were in law school still or had just recently graduated. And they all seemed to have a lot of enthusiasm for it, as did the popular media, of course. Now, based on my history in the investment space, um, my first thought was, oh no, here we go again. You know, I've seen three major economic collapses in my career, and we've been hit particularly hard in Arizona, our home state here. And the root causes of all those seem to have some uh, real common characteristics. Those common characteristics don't mean that, you know, if they exist in a particular investment scenario or technology or business opportunity, that they're going to result in failure. But they are, they are red flags. They're things you need to think about, and they're cause for, for caution. I can talk to you a little bit more about what those characteristics are, but just suffice it to say, I see all of them in the cryptocurrency world in particular, but in the larger blockchain space and environment, I see there's a possibility, at least at the front edge of the development of that technology and its use in our economy, 
some of those some of those warning signs also exist there. Bill, I'd love to double tap on that just because you you pointed to the doorway there. What are those characteristics that that you're talking about? Well, let me start with the information gap. There seemed to be in, in what I was hearing a large information gap between people who were promoting the value of uh, cryptocurrency in particular as an investment vehicle or as a business asset for use in transactions. A large information gap between the people promoting that and the people who would ultimately be expected if the industry were to grow to be using those sorts of investment vehicles or tools. And in particular, that's because it's a technology-based tool. It's something that the vast majority of us don't really understand in any great detail and feel like we don't have the ability to access or understand very well. And therefore, we have to rely upon the promoters of of either cryptocurrency or blockchain technology. We have to rely upon the promoters and the accuracy of what they're telling us about the advantages and the risks of those types of opportunities. So that's one common characteristic. I can give you a couple of others, one of which is the use of common buzzwords, which promoters of sometimes overly risky or novel investment opportunities use, um, which I saw and I still see creeping into the crypto space quite a bit. Things like transparency, phrases like this is completely verifiable, this is safe, this is open, and it's a term trustless system that basically suggests that, hey, look, we've solved all the problems in every other system out there. Now we trust the technology instead, and the technology will save us from having to trust people or entities, businesses out there, all of which sounds great. And I think all of which is there, there's, there's legitimacy to all of those claims about these systems, no question. However, when those are used as the common promotional terms, I can guarantee you that they can be abused. Um, they can be used to overpromise things that, that are not either not deliverable right now or may ultimately in the long run not be deliverable. And that can make things dangerous because with the information gap, now we have reliance upon oftentimes fairly generic uh, promises about what Bitcoin can do for you or other cryptocurrencies can do for you or what blockchain can do for you that are not verifiable not easily verifiable at all by the consuming public. And therefore, there is an awful lot of reliance placed on the promoters for that. And that, again, can create all kinds of dangers because uh, promoters oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes they have a financial incentive, right? They've got a, they've got a personal incentive for promoting the good and ignoring the bad, ignoring the risks and not fully evaluating all that. We can get into that later. Jacob also is a, one of those dynamics that when it exists in a system, often will result in regulation ultimately. When government gets a hold of it and says, well, wait a minute, the folks who are promoting this stuff are not actually allowing people to evaluate the risks fully, and therefore we need to regulate and require disclosures. But that's another characteristic that always raises a red flag for me. I guess the last thing I would say is that uh, unlike more traditional investment vehicles, when we're talking about cryptocurrency in particular, which are at least seem tied ostensibly to the value of a company or perhaps a bond, which the value is tied to a contractual repayment obligation and terms. But there's at least some definable risk there uh, that one can evaluate or you can have, you, we generally have access to professional sources that are evaluating that for us. For example, bond rating companies or folks that are just doing stock evaluation, which are all over the place, 
hardly ever agree on what the real value of something is, but at least we have access to that sort of information. I realize that particularly with the emergence of cryptocurrency, there's a significant amount of additional information now that is available to the consuming or investing public, but it's still a bare minimum compared to what is available to more kind of traditional transactions or opportunities. And given that, I think that we tend to get ahead of ourselves sometimes as, a, as an economy, as a society, and we tend to assume that this new thing is like the old thing. If I don't see the warning signs out there about it, then it doesn't have any more risks or things to be worried about than the old stuff did, the, the prior version of that sort of opportunity it had. And we just make that false assumption. It's a myth that, okay, there's really nothing to worry about here. I don't need to be overly concerned going into the making investment or adopting this technology. When in reality, there's probably a lot of things to be concerned about or to be thinking ahead about or risks to be worried about. And when I see all of those things, it makes me concerned because I've seen so many times that different vehicles, different investment vehicles and things have been used that have promised some significant value for people, but they've also had a lot of potential downsides, which for early adopters have proven to be painful financially. And again, I don't, I don't necessarily predict that here. I, I just think it's something to be concerned about. Absolutely. And I think it's so important to think critically about a new technology, especially when one is growing at the rate of Bitcoin, Ethereum, and the whole blockchain space was, especially over the past two years. And for you to be able to recognize those red flags, point to information asymmetry, the use of buzzwords, a lack of disclosure, do you think this period is analogous to something you've seen before in history? Why do you think you were able to look at this critically and where did these red flags come from? So I think you can draw a lot of analogies to things throughout history. Um, in particular, just looking historically in this country, I like to kind of go back to the turn of the last century and look at the emergence of probably one of the most profoundly impacting technologies that we've ever had, which is the automobile. Well, at the outset, I think people saw the obvious advantages of the automobile as a form of transportation, not just of people, but of goods and the tremendous advantages that that sort of automated transportation could provide for the economy in all kinds of different sectors and applications. The problem is that folks didn't understand what the automobile was, how it worked, what its maintenance issues were, what its you know, physical dangers were, didn't understand any of that and relied upon manufacturers and promoters to promote it into the, into the world. If you look at the history of the development of that industry, I mean, there were hundreds and hundreds of new auto manufacturers that emerged on the scene, all of which claimed to have the new, better device, many of which were very sketchy, uh, or the company simply couldn't deliver as promised. And you know, it took a, a while before all that stuff sorted out. And in the meantime, there were a lot of folks, both on the investment side, putting capital into those ventures who just didn't understand enough about them. They understood that, hey, if we get this right, we can make a lot of money and we can provide a lot of value to people. But they didn't know how to evaluate what the risk were of that investment. And they lost on those investments. Similarly, on the consumer side, there are a lot of folks who thought, okay, well, this is the next greatest thing. Everyone's getting an automobile or a truck or a bus for their business. I'm going to get in on that. But again, they had a difficult time evaluating exactly what that meant for them, what the long-term costs were going to be, how successfully it could be integrated. And you know, a lot of people bet on the wrong horse. They bought the wrong stuff. They invested the, the wrong direction. But if you take that into more recent events, take a look at the securitization of mortgages that brought on the kind of disaster of the Great Recession. I mean, there were elements of that at the beginning that perhaps made a lot of sense financially. There were 
there were some financial advantages. There was some risk or, or spreading of the risk that could be achieved by those sorts of vehicles. However, there was also a lot of room for a lot of junk to be stuffed in there that really had no value to people and sold as something it really wasn't. And again, once that, as I, I like the term irrational exuberance, um, you know, Alan Greenspan, I think, coined that phrase, or at least people give him credit for coining that phrase. But I think you can see that in a lot of different emerging technologies and financial structures that we've created over the years that at first someone figures out that I got something new here and it actually works. But then you get a whole bunch of other people who jump on the train and attempt to replicate that, many of whom really aren't that informed. They are they're, they're poor replication of the first iteration of that. And you also then invite unscrupulous people into the space who realize that, hey, I can, I can play the game. I can promote something that kind of looks like it may work the same way as someone else's invention, but it really doesn't work that way. And it has all kinds of other risks associated with it that just don't exist in the original idea. And until the economy sorts out that, that, all that out and we start to balance the, the information gap back out by unfortunately going through the failures, there's some, there's some hard times ahead for some people. And one quote that I really like pertaining to the crypto space is we tend to overestimate technology in the short run and underestimate it in the long run. And cars are such a great example of that, where people thought they'll be everywhere, but it took time to build the infrastructure, the roads, the highways, suburbia, etc. that would actually make cars a thriving business. Gideon, thank you for being so patient. I'd love to, to turn it over to you and, and learn about where you see the value in, in blockchain and crypto, particularly from the legal side. Yeah, I, short of the internet being switched off, I don't see a scenario where computers get less useful over time. And a good analogy I've heard is to an elevator. An elevator used to be a device that was manually operated. And I'm sure the first people who got into an elevator and there was nobody there pulling the lever were pretty freaked out. But now we do it, it's commonplace. And, and I'm just, I think there's a lot of aspects of, of not just finance, but social life and culture. Every relationship you can name now takes place on the medium of the internet. His analogy of the elevator, I think it's actually apropos here because think about your automated elevator here in our building, for example, it's got an inspection certificate in it that shows that it went through careful government regulation it had to meet very specific technological standards for safety. It has to have, I'm sure, all kinds of meet code. It's got to have all kinds of backup systems and braking systems, and it has to be tested. I know they're tested on a regular basis to, to meet all of the city requirements. So yeah, I, I think there's an example where, yes, people became more comfortable with it just by interacting with it, but also it brought on, that technology brought on a lot of regulation to make sure that people would feel comfortable using it. And I, I know that may sound like a crazy analogy to what we're talking about here, but I'm not sure that it's really that much of a stretch. Yeah, I completely agree. And one point you brought up is the licensing and the government oversight when it comes to elevators and ensuring regular inspections. I find it really interesting when you think about the idea of auditing smart contracts and code where now you're building an exchange, whether it's decentralized or centralized, that's running through these smart contracts where it could have catastrophic systemic effects on the financial system if something was to happen with regards to liquidity being locked or, or sent to a wrong address. H have you thought about 
the idea of government or some sort of oversight body to smart contracts, Bill or Gideon, where do you see just there being some sort of middle ground here? Because a lot of people worry, and even Commissioner Peirce said, the government's job isn't to approve or disprove software. And it gets dangerous when you ask the SEC, for example, to go in and approve something like a smart contract. Right. Well, let me give you some examples of some middle grounds that I think actually currently exist in other areas that may provide some sort of a apt model. So what we all do as lawyers, our system, at least here, is that we are a self-regulating industry. Um, yes. Are we subject to government regulation? Absolutely. I have to get a bar license that comes to our Supreme Court, right? If I want to get admitted in federal court, I've got to get a federal court judge to say you're admitted. However, we have also maintained uh, ourselves as a self-regulating industry, and there's probably all kinds of explanations of why we do that, but I think it's in part, it's done so that we don't have to have as much federal or, or state regulation. We can provide the, you know, anyone who's concerned in the government sphere with the assurances that, no, we're taking care of this ourselves, right? For the most part, except in the most egregious situations, we're taking care of it ourselves. We have a system that works. We monitor ourselves. We have a complaint uh, process. We have a sanctioning process and all of that that we impose upon ourselves. The securities industry in the United States works the same way. You know, we have FINRA. That FINRA is a self-regulatory organization made up of all the licensed broker dealers. They have agreed to play by certain rules and to set up systems which are pretty robust for self-regulation. Now, is the SEC also involved? Absolutely. Is there sometimes um, friction between those two systems? Yeah, there, there can be. But I believe that the system works well for the most part, and it protects us against some of those catastrophic things you're talking about because it provides an assurance that the industry itself is committed to and sensitized at all times to those sorts of issues, those risks, those in, in protecting the consuming public. So I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but I think that kind of a middle ground approach might be appropriate here, particularly in the cryptocurrency space. If you think about it, I know that for developers, the idea that I'm going to suddenly impose upon myself regulation that I don't think I really need because I think the software provides all the protection that's necessary. I know that can be, can be distasteful. People can fear that I'm suddenly creating all kinds of expense that I don't need in these systems. However, you know, think about the alternative. Would you rather have the government stepping in and providing all the regulation for you? And I think the answer generally for many industries, especially those that involve finance and professions has been, no, we, we don't want the government to do all that for us. We'd rather be doing a lot of it ourselves and ensuring the government that they don't really need to, to get into regulating our business any more than they absolutely have to. The technological change is accelerating. Right. And one of the things crypto is going to do is it's going to make things happen faster. Economic collaboration between people can happen faster now. Strangers can raise funds and disperse them and allocate them pretty much as fast as you can write a smart contract. You can raise money and do anything you want with it. Obviously, the speed that can happen and the oversight that the government and society has into that process it limits the opportunity for the public to have an input in what should be possible in these environments. So this is called the pacing problem, which is, I think, a term coined by Professor Marchant back in like the 80s, where law, government can't react fast enough to get ahead of the next technology. So it's always playing catch up. 
And I think crypto and artificial intelligence are making the gap between government oversight of any kind and the capacity of technology to change the world. That gap is increasing. So this soft law approach, as I think some people call it, where industry groups get together and agree on conventions and agree on codes of conduct, can be one way to get out ahead of things. And then on the flip side, the, the effect of these sort of industry collaborative agreements is that courts can then use those as evidence of what we can, what standards we can hold software developers, for example, to. And it, it's such an interesting area because if you look at the DAO, for example, that launched in 2016, they were audited by the top security firms in the world. They checked the code and there was still a bug in it. And you can make the argument that just like publicly traded companies, there can be all the disclosure in the world. That doesn't mean the company won't go bankrupt. And it's an interesting dilemma because you have this idea of protecting consumers where disclosure is necessary, but it doesn't necessarily mark the long-term sustainability of the entity where a public company can go bankrupt just like a smart contract can be hacked or fall apart in some way or act in a way that the parties otherwise didn't expect. And if you have the mindset of, well, we can't let there be any particular issues, well, then you're going to stagnate the ability to develop this technology over time. And so I think having a middle ground where, yes, there will be some, for example, lawyers who make mistakes and who, or maybe don't make mistakes, but intentionally go beyond the ethics or or run into problems there, the self-governing allows for there to be some recourse. And I think when it comes to crypto, that's a, a good middle ground. It'll be interesting to see how that develops. To, to talk a bit, just because we're on the idea of this, this collapse and, and issues can happen, Bill, I'd love to hear when a, litig- a litigator typically appears when we'd see the collapse of protocols and large sums of money disappear. Could you explain when, like we've seen the collapse of a few protocols, when would a litigator be involved and from what aspect would that let litigator be involved? Um, so there's a kind of a multi-part answer to that. First of all, as most lawyer answers start, it starts with it depends, right? And partly it depends upon who's impacted. There are a wide variety of risk tolerances out there in any economic community, okay? The people who are most most risk averse are going to employ a litigator probably very early. I mean, they are going to sense the, by monitoring the success or failure of whatever application they're using, whether that's an investment or whether it's an application of software that's been promised to provide some sort of efficiencies and access to maybe markets that they didn't have before. They're going to be monitoring all of that to see if their investment in that, their their commitment of capital to that is being fulfilled or not, or if their expectations are being dashed there, they will get litigators involved very soon. That is not the vast majority of any market. In my experience, it takes serious widespread problems before uh, the vast majority of folks, particularly in the consumer end, the consumer market, start talking to lawyers. And, and maybe what I'm really referring to there, Jacob, is something different. Maybe it's not that they're not talking to lawyers. Maybe that lawyers are not listening to them until it becomes big, a big enough issue. Because oftentimes when we're talking about those really big issues, there is a financial incentive in the legal field to become involved. Right. 
No longer are you dealing with something where a few bucks were lost here and there. And, and we all know that it's very difficult for consumer clients and even for some, many small businesses to afford good litigation counsel. Good litigation counsel is oftentimes waiting in the wings for the cases that will pay on a contingency fee. And those cases usually need to involve something pretty big, pretty dramatic. And so the vast majority of that stuff is going to happen when the collapse gets deeper, right? And it starts affecting a much, much wider spectrum of, of the community. Finally, there will be eventually at the end of that, the end of any sort of collapse, if it's truly a, a major market collapse of some kind or failure, there'll be a lot of litigators involved at the very end. But unfortunately, by that time, you get very little out of it because oftentimes the resources that were available to provide relief to people, to protect people, to compensate them for any losses they have, they're all gone. And that's oftentimes where you see government come in. If it's a big enough collapse, then you see government come in with bailout programs and those sorts of things that they put in place to try and at least create some sort of minimal safety net. But that's often a drop in the bucket for what's already been lost. So for those people who would be considering a litigator, my advice is always consider them as early as possible because Again, you don't want to be left holding the bag. You don't want to be coming to the party at the very end when the cake has already been eaten. I could probably give you a whole bunch of other analogies, silly analogies there. You, you would want to get in on it early. And also, frankly, in, in the type of litigation that you see in this space that we're seeing right now, you're aware, Jacob, obviously, of class actions being filed now just in, in the, the crypto market, right? Well, a, a class action is oftentimes directed by the attorneys, but sometimes it can be heavily influenced by the class representatives, the folks that are there first on the scene as the first victims who are educating the attorneys, who then become very reliant upon those folks to help them figure out the direction for the litigation. And, and they become very influential in, in the outcomes and helping make decisions about how things get settled. And that's always a good position to be in, particularly if you've got a significant stake that you're trying to protect. Bill, I'd love to ask a question on that because I've been really impressed with every litigator I've spoken with in their ability to tell stories. And I believe that comes largely from a very strong and nuanced understanding of the issue and the story to be told. When you first get involved on a file, how do you go about building your understanding of the case so that you can tell a story in a coherent and a persuasive manner? Well, the first thing, Jacob, you have to do is you have to understand the all the facts that are available to build that story from. And that means you need to sit down and talk to people who are involved. One of my earliest bosses slash mentors in the law told me that, hey, when a new file comes in, this is, I, I was actually in the military when I started my practice and I was working for the Army Corps of Engineers headquarters, chief counsel's office. And so cases that I got came in from all over the country. Sometimes we got cases from other parts of the world, but his advice to me was, you know, when you get the file, get on a plane and go meet the people who were involved in that situation and sit down with them and talk to them find out what happened from them. Don't try and figure it out all by yourself by putting little puzzle pieces together, but really dig in with the people who can tell the story. At the end of the day, Jacob, I'm, I'm really pleased to hear you talking about storytelling as, as part of what we do, because it's the vast majority of what we do. I think the general public has a perception of trial lawyers as what they see on TV, that it's grandstanding and it's making these really eloquent speeches about stuff. That's not what it's about at all. It is literally about telling a story, about taking facts 
taking a dilemma, creating the drama so that a jury or a judge can understand and can relate to it themselves and can say, oh, well, I get it. I know what happened here. I, and I can put myself in that situation and I can feel how I would feel if I were on one side or the other of this story. And I know how I'd want that story to turn out. And I think I know what it would be the fair way for it to turn out. So that's what we do. We convert facts and oftentimes complicated facts into stories that involve real people, real dilemmas, and things that you as a juror or as a judge can, can relate to yourself. And if I can give you an example, Jacob, of something, just kind of a hypothetical as a maybe a word of warning to people who may be advising folks who are out there developing applications or developing new cryptocurrency opportunities or uses for it and promoting that to, to others. This is the problem with buzzwords, right? Um, when I say something is safe or I say something is transparent or I say something is reliable or verifiable, right? Those have incredibly deep potential meanings to all of us. We can all relate to someone saying, is something is safe. I can't imagine how many people have been asked to invest in something or have gone to their bank for that matter. And someone's talked to them about even the simplest type of investment vehicles, like a certificate of deposit. And the customer says, well, is this safe? And when you're given that assurance by someone who has ostensible authority, right? And knowledge and has that information that you don't have. And they say, yeah, this is safe. Oh, it's transparent. You'll be able to see what's in your account at all times. You know, you will be the only one authorized to do this. So in the old days, we had signature cards at the bank. And don't worry, our tellers will match the signature card to the signature of the person trying to withdraw the money. Um, it's safe. It's reliable. It's verifiable. You can call us at any time. That, those type of things, people can relate to that. And I could tell a very easy story. If someone is using buzzwords like that to promote an opportunity, and all the only facts that I have to show you are, you know what? Gideon had $100,000. Jacob promised him that this technology he'd been working on for the last 10 years and that he had invested huge amounts of money in was going to provide a perfectly safe investment environment for him, or it was going to provide a safe way for him to do business with his customers where he could guarantee that his payments were going to come in at all times. Now, Gideon gave up his $100,000 in reliance on someone telling him this was safe. Now Gideon doesn't have his $100,000. I mean, that's a simple story right there. And when people are using those kind of promotional tactics, they may be fairly accurate or at least reasonably accurate statements, but see how easy it is to tell the story when something goes wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so important for projects to be cognizant of the risks like that. And what you said earlier was absolutely on point, Bill. Bring in a lawyer as early as you can to point out where those red flags might be, where buzzwords could get you in trouble, particularly when it comes to investors. On that point, Bill, if you were to teach a course on avoiding crypto litigation 101, what would be some things you'd include in the in the syllabus? Great question. The most obvious or the most important issue up front would be for people to understand that we have existing systems right now in place that are designed to protect investors and particularly consumers. And you always run the risk that those are going to be used against you. Although I recognize there's a lot of ambiguity right now, a lot of uncertainty about whether, for example, cryptocurrency can constitute a security. 
for purposes of enforcement of securities registration issues and securities fraud laws, those type of things. The reality is that for a regulator, they look like a security. I mean, they really do for a lot of regulators anyway. Now, there are some people that could recognize differences, uh, material differences or nuanced differences, and they may decide that now nah, it really doesn't fit my world. But for a lot of folks out there who may have the power to regulate and enforce things, they very well may come down saying, no, nope, this looks like it was a security to me. And if you didn't have it registered, and if you're not registered and licensed to sell it, you're now under my jurisdiction and I can enforce the laws against you. Or on the civil side, possibly also on the government side, you could have securities fraud implications where you've now opened yourself up to claims that your promotional practices violated the securities fraud laws. And that can have very serious implications. It can have criminal implications on, in, in some ways. It can also have very large civil implications. So understanding where you'd be crossing those lines, I think would be the most important thing you know, for people to, to learn in a class because those systems already exist. I think the second level, and maybe I'll kind of end this here because it would be a really long class to, to, to get into all of this. But uh, the second level would be uh, understanding how uh, uh, other facets of the law that currently exist could be applied against you, even though they've never been applied to your industry or your space or your product before. And that would include things like the tort law. Contract law is an obvious one, right? Because contracts can be created very easily uh, as well. In, in most states in the U.S., you know, we recognize verbal contracts and not everything has to be in writing. And anyone who's litigated over a verbal contract knows how sticky those cases are. And when you have two people who are just, it's just a he said, she said environment, it can be costly and difficult to extract yourself from. Those could apply in, in, these, in these environments very easily. But the tort law also just general common law fraud or statutory fraud that some states have. You've got conversion issues where you take someone's property and someone's put their property into your system, right? Subjected their property to your protocols, to your software. Now that property is gone or it went to someone they didn't intend it to go to or something, somehow their expectations were not fulfilled and that property is gone. Well, you've got conversion claims that can be brought there. So there's a lot of other facets of the law that may be applied and there are going to be creative attorneys out there who are looking for ways to apply that when a client shows up and says, hey, I thought I had this relationship. I thought I had these promises. I used to have these assets. I now no longer have what I thought I had, or I've, I've been harmed because I thought I was going to get this wonderful outcome and I didn't get it. But there are going to be attorneys like me who are going to say, well, I don't want to be too creative. I'm just going to go look at the, look at the old books, the dust off the old books and say, well, what theories do we have out there that we could use? And there are plenty of them. I think I would add to that also the, there's a lot of, there's this meme out there with people creating crypto projects, that they're doing this outside the reach of the law, that because this is a, a new space and they're, it's between different jurisdictions and it's and there might be the shield of anonymity, that the courts can't do anything about it, that, they'll never, that they're impervious to lawsuits. But that's just not true. And I think I would also want, want people to understand just what exactly happens when a lawsuit arises. The process of discovery and information forcing where to put it this way, what happens on Discord does not stay on Discord. So there's all these people. Another thing that I think what Bill was saying a minute ago is that judges, like the job of lawyers is to convince the judge 
that the law should be what favors our client, right? And judges aren't looking at this as a new technology that they need to design a whole new regime for. They're looking for the simplest way to fit this new set of facts into the existing hierarchy and and move on to the next case, right? Into, into the existing framework, I should say, right? So there's this, they have this sort of system of law that they can fit different factual scenarios into. And that's what they, that's what, that's how they do it. They don't, they're not going to concoct a new regulatory regime from the bench for your client. They're going to take your story and say, what does this sound like that I already know? And then they're going to do that with it. So that's where you want a litigator who, who is fluent in, in the technology and the architecture of the software, but also, so they know why it's new and what to compare it to, what analogies to draw. But in the end, as my favorite line from any movie goes, it's not what you know, it's what you can prove that matters in the end. Hey, Jacob, if I could piggyback off of what you said for just a second, I, I think that there's also some traps out there that are waiting for people in the blockchain space um, in particular, because because it's you've got open source, you've got data transparency, you've got all of these issues that um, one could argue, especially if you're really uh, astute with the technology, right? And you're very familiar with it and you, you, you understand the programming side of it. You'd say, well, gee, this is all so transparent that how could I ever be accused of misleading somebody? Because all you had to do is check the code, right? Check the open source data that's out there. Look, caveat emptor, you know, you, you had a right to check it. You had just as much ability to check it as anyone else did. I will tell you, though, that has that same sort of argument has failed time and time and time again in other industries where same argument could be made that, gee, as a member of the consuming public, you had access to information that you just didn't bother to access. You just didn't attempt to. Um, but it was there for you. And therefore, you can't claim that I, I, I materially misled you. You know, fraud, at least in, in the common law context, has a, an element of reliance, right? You have to show that you, you actually relied upon the representations the other side made. And at the common law level, it, you generally have to prove that that was justifiable or reasonable reliance. So someone could point out the fact that, hey, well, Gideon told me that... Uh, I, I say Gideon said that he was selling me a car made of pure gold, but I went out and looked at it and it was a, just a pile of rust, right? And so I couldn't have reasonably relied upon his statement. However, if Gideon has access to that information that it's not made of pure gold and I don't have access to it, I just don't reasonably have access to it, either because the car is not here or just because I wouldn't know what I was looking at anyway, I may still have a claim. I may be able to show that I reasonably relied upon the representations, despite the fact that all of this stuff is out there for knowledgeable people to examine. Um, I think what's going to be fascinating is the role of third party auditors, as you were kind of alluding to earlier, and how they're going to be used by the industry. Because I, I think that, you know, it's possible that folks may move into the practice of saying, look, if you're going to utilize, you know, what we've developed and you're going to be on our platform, then, you know, you're also going to subscribe to, you know, some auditing service uh, that is a third party that we can shift some of the risk and responsibility to um, so that, you know, we're not holding the bag at the end of the day when things don't work the way you want to say later on that you thought they were going to work. That's such a great point, Bill. And I'm really glad you raised that because when, when I, 
think about the auditors. It's more so from a consumer protection standpoint in the first case. But there's also that second instance where if something does go wrong, people are always looking for someone to blame. And if you have a third-party auditor, and if you are the third-party auditor, you might want to have some insurance to back up yourself from those claims because it's really a Pandora's box when it comes to what we're seeing with the code. Uh, Obviously, another thing that we always deal with as litigators is standard of care issues, right? So anytime you're dealing with a not anytime you're dealing with a tort case, but in a lot of tort cases, you have a standard of care question. If you have established a standard of care within a particular industry or sub-industry group that folks in that industry have aligned themselves to and have adopted, you're going a long way toward preventing someone from arguing later on that, gee, you should have done more, right? You should have done more to protect the consuming public. So I would expect that those sorts of, again, voluntary commitments made in, if there's, as long as they're made with a sincere structure that really is attempting to fully disclose and, and protect people from the most obvious risks, or at least warn them of the most obvious risks. I think that sort of thing is a great mitigating step and that, that people should be really excited about getting, getting involved in because that could really protect you uh, significantly. Yeah. So I, I did, uh, I did see a couple stories recently about some of these platforms that have collapsed. Lido Finance uh, apparently has says represents that it has purchased insurance or it has insurance through a uh, a company called Unslashed. I don't know anything about them. I do know that this issue presents a whole new slew. I used to be a, an insurance claim adjuster before law school, and the interpretation of insurance contracts when you start. I call it this gap between the pros and the programming where you have some of the terms of an agreement are in, in pros and some of them are in programming. There, There is a whole un, untouched, really, landscape of legal issues, contract issues, torts issues in that space. Insurance, though, is one of the uh, more interesting areas of crypto, if, in my opinion. So, Jacob, if I could ask another question to give us some insight, some inside baseball on something. We don't, we don't work very much in the transactional field, right? We're mostly litigating stuff. So we're mostly coming in when things, something's falling apart and we're either defending somebody or we're advocating for them to get some sort of relief. Well, on the, uh, but on the transactional side of things, I, I'm, I am curious, what type of uh, collaboration are you seeing between lawyers and programmers? I, I probably don't have the analogy quite right, but I see it as almost a translation into another language in some respects. And so what are you seeing in terms of the commercial attorneys who are trying to make sure that when their clients convert this agreement and their intentions into a smart contract transaction, that they're getting exactly what the agreement provides? It's such an important question, Bill, and really something that I've seen begin to develop. I had a great conversation with a few lawyers who work with Lex Dow and have their own firms as well, Ross Campbell and Jordan Teague, discussing the idea of what's called a Ricardian contract. And this was a term coined by Ian Grigg in 1996. And the idea is that you're placing these elements of a legal agreement in a format that can be expressed and executed in software. So it's readable by both humans and machines. And there's a few ways to do that. And I think that's where the development is happening now, where you can have this agreement that you or I can go in and read and understand that can be just as it is submitted to the computer and will execute according to the terms of the agreement. So it includes both code 
and textual language that we can understand. And I think that is going to really accelerate in terms of just adoption of crypto, as well as tying in this whole idea of code is law, and there is a law of code together in a sense that we will have a future where lawyers will still draft agreements, they will have an in-house developer or a smart contract programmer who will merge the two or maybe outsource to a translator that will merge the two. And then you put those on chain, for example, and now it executes according to the terms of an agreement. So I would really recommend to everyone listening, if you're not familiar with Ricardian contracts, to, to read about them because it's really fascinating to see the blend of those two things because I think that's the only real way we can reach a future where the law and code merges together because code will never exist in a vacuum. Legal title is contains the word legal in it. And without that, without property law, you can't get after goods that are stolen. And as much as the crypto anarchists love that idea, <laughs> at the end of the day, that leads to a pretty dangerous future when it's a winner take all mentality. The way I the way I phrase that, Jacob, I completely agree with you. Can't get rid of the the role of courts. If you think of the definition of a contract, a contract is a promise that the courts will enforce. So if if you don't have a court, you don't have a contract, really. But I agree that the blend, the the recording contracts are very interesting. And Bill, I'd love just on the topic of contracts to to turn this back to you. What can commercial lawyers learn from litigators? If, if you were to explain or sit down with a bunch of commercial drafters, what would be some things you would point out that you've learned that maybe are often missed by drafters of commercial agreements? Yeah. So most fundamentally, Jacob, and I, I take this from my own experience because Obviously, we do some transactional work and and we're doing transactional work all the time in the sense of sophisticated settlement agreements, right? Um, and what you find over and over again in that environment is, is that you reach points of dispute where the two sides cannot quite agree on exactly how a particular contingency is to be handled, all right? And when you really put it, the two sides up against each other, head to head, you don't have agreement exactly on that. But you have significant desire to nevertheless consummate the contract. And so what lawyers frequently do is, well, let's compromise the language so that on that issue, we leave the fight to another day. And the language is going to be in a, you know, on my end, I can tell my client, don't worry, you've got a risk that a judge reads this differently. However, I think this language allows you to argue that the intent of the contract was what you want it to be. And the other attorney is doing the same dance and exercise on their side, right? And we know this happens all the time in commercial contracting. There are just certain points where people decide, I want to do the deal. That particular issue I don't think is going to happen. You know, both sides don't think it's very likely, but if in the event it does happen, I want to have the door open for me to make my argument, but I'm willing to accept ambiguity in the contract. I will tell you that um, what a litigator does with your contract when they get it is, they look for every single one of those ambiguities and they attempt to use those as the entry point for either their, their argument about your, your breach, your client's breach, or for a defense point, right? And that's what we look at first. So 
I recognize there's a practical problem there because you want to, you want your client to get to the finish line. The client wants to get to the finish line. And I think ethically, as long as you're advising them that, Hey, this gets you to the finish line, but it doesn't, it could be very ambiguous at the end. You're, you've got a risk here. And as long as you properly advise them on all of that, you're not doing anything wrong as a lawyer. However, I will warn you that when every time you make that sort of a compromise and you facilitate that, you're opening up an issue for me to try and exploit if, in fact, that contingency comes to pass. And I just think that oftentimes folks on the transactional side don't don't anticipate that very well. I mean, they they think that, well, I'm leaving enough there that with a good lawyer on my client side, they can argue that really effectively. Well, I think particularly from a defense standpoint, ambiguity is a horrible thing. If you think you're going to be the one defending on that issue, because there's a lot of downside to you, if that contract isn't interpreted your way, I would be very, very careful about allowing that sort of ambiguity to creep into a contract. Thanks, Bill. One thing you alluded to was you can see where sometimes there might feel like there's a short-term benefit. There's a short-term gain to saying, you know what, let's just leave it. We'll deal with this another day. Let's get it done. We'll kick the can down the road. What what popped to mind to me is, is that ever a good idea or is it worth saying, look, let's just sort this out now. It might be a little more painful, but it's worth doing in case things go south in the long run. You know, that's a really tough question, Jacob, because I can I can think of an endless variety of situations where the risk assessment would be, hey, our risk is very, very small here. And perhaps the benefits of the transaction or the relationship or getting that consummated far outweigh those risks. I, I And that's a business decision. At the end of the day, that's just a, a pure business decision. Um, I think our role as attorneys, though, is to make sure that the client makes the business decision, that they don't assume that we've done right by them. Right. And I think that's a danger that it's, it's especially when you're talking about very sophisticated, large, complex contracts. You got a client that's in a hurry, which they always are. Right. They're always they want that contract yesterday. They're afraid that they're going to lose this deal. They want it done. It's very easy to kind of skate over those sorts of issues and not do the the really tough kind of uh, spade work that you need to do with the client to dig into it and say, hey, look, there's some ambiguity here. There's some potential risk. There's some problems. I need to make sure you understand it. I've documented it and I've attempted to work out alternatives for you, which mitigate that risk and and maybe require some compromise further on your point, but, you know, are going to mitigate that risk that at the end of the day, it's completely ambiguous and it's decided in the other side's favor. Um, So I, I think that's our job. And we always have the job to alert the clients to those risks. Ultimately, sometimes clients accept risks that you or I wouldn't accept because their business perspective is just different than ours would be. But I, I think it's really important that you're you're targeting all those things, identifying, highlighting them for them. That's such a good point. And a lot of times on this podcast, I like to ask what makes a great lawyer? And we'll get to that question. Um, but just to, to put a pin in that, communication is always something that people discuss. And that's a great example of being overly communicative having a positive impact in the long run. I'd love to talk a bit about litigation and Gideon. What have you learned since joining a litigation boutique that surprised you about the litigation process? You mentioned discovery. And I remember when I first learned about the discovery process and how extensive it is, I was scared because I thought, oh, I need to be really careful when I'm sending emails rather than sometimes 1130 at night, just getting them done to make sure I'm getting them out. What's something that surprised you most about the side of litigation in the real world as opposed to what you learn in law school? 
That's a that's a great question. I don't know that this was really surprising, but the it's not a secret that law school doesn't um, it doesn't it doesn't equip you to start trying cases the day you graduate. There's some there's a, a large amount of real world experience you need to watch guys like Bill who've been doing it for a long time. So what the, what you learn in 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 practice is that it really comes down to the stories you can tell and how pers- how clearly and persuasively you can articulate them. Judges are human beings. They're trying to get through their work day the same way everybody else is. They want to get it right and and they're trying they they usually do get it right. We got to give the the judiciary credit I think for that. But as a young lawyer, the thing that I'm learning is that your client's story is the heart of the litigation and you can only get your client's story by listening like Bill said at the beginning to every everything your client has to say and by really putting yourself into the role of the advocate but the law the, the legal principles are are very important and obviously you need to know the law you need to be able to articulate the law well and you need to know what arguments are available to you but the better you can articulate your client's story i think the better off you are Thanks, Gideon. And Bill, I'd love to turn that to you and hear what you've learned. And even if you want to just piggyback off Gideon's answer, what surprised you about building a career in the litigation space? Yeah, another great question. I think I would summarize it by saying, Jacob, I've learned over time and I'm continuing to learn that the law as we practice it is not nearly as complex as we may make it seem as a legal system by putting lots of sophisticated legal labels on things and creating these lengthy statutory and regulatory schemes that are difficult to decipher and hard to apply. In reality, at the end of the day, the idea of doing justice, at least in a Western sense, it comes down to a certain set of values and principles that we generally share as a society, as a nation or a group of human beings. And those value, I'm just going to tell you, I've seen this happen over and over again in trials. Those values prioritize honesty, transparency, humility, and honoring one's word or promise. Um, At the end of the day, if a case lands on my desk where I can show that one of those principles, one of those values is really at risk here, is really in play here, and the most obvious one is honesty. If I can show that, you know, the other side is being dishonest in their story, then I can succeed. Not every time, maybe, but I have a decent chance. It isn't that complicated. A good attorney who's got some experience, who has seen this stuff operate and seen, as Gideon pointed out, he was absolutely right. Judges are human beings. If a judge has decided my case or an arbitrator or a regulatory decision maker, an administrative law judge, they're all just human beings. They make decisions the same way that everyone else does. And whether that's as someone who is not highly educated not sophisticated in the legal principles, or someone who is a a law professor who is studying the nuances of constitutional principles and policy. At the end of the day, when we actually have to make decisions for other human beings that actually affect their lives, it comes down to a few factors, really, that are most important to us. And the key as a trial attorney is ensuring that decision maker understands that those factors are in issue and in danger in your client's case and that the, that person has power to ensure that those principles, those values that we all think so highly of are reinforced one more time in society by, by the decision that they make. 
I'm going to throw you under the bus here a little bit, Bill, and spill some advice you gave me. Um, when we were in federal court, we were the, in court and Bill's daughter was there to watch Bill argue as a part of the trial. And I think we were at lunch or something and Bill mentioned something that has stuck with me. He said that he doesn't ever want to hear me say that I don't want anybody from the office or any of my family to come and watch me in court. And I thought I've been thinking about that ever since he said it. And I think the reason is that it's authenticity. I mean, Bill is Bill in the courtroom and out of the courtroom. And he's and the authenticity, I think, is surprising. In law school, you're taught to be buttoned up. And, and it's actually something that Jason Gottlieb said on your podcast, Jacob, you know, you can be yourself as a lawyer, it turns out. And uh, and clients like that, judges and juries appreciate it. You don't have to pretend to be anything else. I had one caveat to that. I agree. You can totally be yourself unless you're a jerk. As a, <laughs> That's your natural state that you're not going to do very well. But otherwise, absolutely, you can and should be yourself. Yeah, if you're a jerk, switch it up a little bit and, and pretend to be a nice guy or, or a girl. But Yeah, uh, unfortunately, Jacob, that doesn't work. I, I, I don't think people who really are that way, they, they most of them can't fake it. They just they, they try sometimes, but they can't. So just be a nice person, right? You don't don't be a jerk and pays dividends because then you'll tap into all those things with those factors we just talked about. Yeah, and I'd, I'd love to build off that. And I know when I was in my first year of law school and we had a moot and the first moot I did, I was robotic. I memorized exactly what I was going to say. And the feedback from one of the judges was next time, just write down the 10 or 12 points you want to make. And the rest, you're just gonna talk. And it was way, it was way easier for me the second time. And I did a much better job. I articulated what I wanted to, and I felt more comfortable. But it wasn't easy going into it. I felt very nervous. I didn't feel prepared. How did you develop that ability to be comfortable in your own skin, where professionalism and almost status signaling is in the legal profession? How did you build that ability to do that? Yeah. Well, I got to be perfectly honest with you. It did not come easy for me. Law school came incredibly easy for me. Being a lawyer is incredibly hard, particularly being a trial lawyer. And although I love every minute of it, it is a lot of work for me because it doesn't uh, it doesn't come naturally for me. I kind of came out of law school believing what a lot of law students do, which is you're taught to be really clever and you're taught to make these super nuanced arguments and you're taught to find analogies in places that no other regular human being would ever find an analogy, right? Um, and, and I tried the being harsh and uh, uh, very serious, overly serious, that sort of stuff. And I failed. Um, and I, I saw the failures. I got feedback sometimes from people. And I also had the good fortune of having some mentors, though, that were the exact opposite of me. And in particular, I'll give a shout out to, there was a, an attorney here in town, Warner Lee, who became my mentor. And he was a trial lawyer's trial lawyer. And he would constantly remind me of the fact that throughout his entire career, he had never, he was very proud of the fact that he had never written down a closing argument ever because he said, by the time I get to the end of the trial, the jury's heard what I heard. We've heard, all heard the same thing. I just need to talk to him about what we all just heard together. That's it. And so the advice you got, Jacob, was brilliant. I mean, it's, that is exactly what you're doing. You're having a, you're just having a conversation with people. And I watched him and I remember the first times I went to court with him and I'd see him and he was not a silver tongued guy. He was an Indiana farm boy who just knew how to talk incredibly genuinely and sincerely to people and simply. And 
at first I thought, well, that's not what a lawyer does, right? That's not what I see on TV and in the movies and what they taught me to be about in law school. But the guy was incredibly successful for that reason. He related to people, people related to him and they knew they weren't getting a story. They weren't getting, I mean, an untrue story. They weren't getting shined on. It wasn't trying to manipulate their emotions or take advantage of them. He was just trying to connect with them as other human beings. And I've had to learn that consciously to apply it. Now, I think I've done okay in, in learning that lesson, but it's a, it's a lesson that someone like me had to, I had to really think hard about it. And I have to think about it every day about how do I make sure that I'm just being genuine? I will give you one little secret, Jacob, that I, uh, so you, you introduced me as an endurance runner and I do run a lot. I run for hours at a time sometimes. And, um, I, I think about my cases always when I'm running, I can't help it. And oftentimes I will come up with arguments I'm going to make either an opening statement or a closing argument or argument I'm going to make to the court. And I'll, I'll think through those and I'll script them out in my mind. And sometimes they sound really good in my head, right? With all the endorphins flowing at that point in time, they feel great. It's like, oh, this is just going to blow people away. But I always tell myself one thing, which is no matter what, right? When you get in the moment and you're in the courtroom and you're making the argument, do not say anything that you do not feel in your heart, that you do not feel sincerely, that you you legitimately wouldn't say to your best friend or your mother or someone you really cared about when you were trying to advise them of something you thought was really in their best interest, right? Never do that. And it's never failed me. That's a great instinct to develop, that if you start feeling any hint of insincerity, bail out, don't go that direction. But if you can deliver something that has a powerful emotional stroke to it and you can do it sincerely, you'll hear the angels sing. I mean, literally, you will see the reaction that people have to it. You'll feel it in your gut. It's, it's kind of an amazing experience to go through that. But you first have to develop that instinct and be consciously aware of it as you're presenting. That's a really important concept to keep in mind. I think even for those outside the litigation space, whatever it is you're doing, if in your gut it doesn't feel right, there's a reason for that. And I don't know why that is, but I think it's something we need to, to keep in mind and, and really bring into our practice. When it comes to building your legal career and building yourself up as a lawyer, what do you see young lawyers spending too much time worrying about or focusing on that they could really just, if they were to ignore it, they would be so much better off? And I like to ask that question because we always get a lot of advice of what we should do, but to do all those things, sometimes you need to subtract. And I was right. wondering if there's anything that you think lawyers in general could subtract and benefit from. I don't think this applies just to lawyers. I think it applies to people in general, but I think it may be particularly important for lawyers because of, of where society kind of places us, right? In the great mythology of what important role lawyers may play. Lawyers spend too much time focusing on themselves and particularly young lawyers. More specifically, they spend too much time wanting attention and respect and to be recognized for their brilliance and to have clients and partners and other colleagues that are grateful for what they do and what they bring. If that is your focus, number one, you're going to be disappointed as a young lawyer, especially because very rarely are you doing something that someone else recognizes as brilliance. Okay. Most older attorneys have already been there, done that. And they're going to say, okay, well, that's what you're supposed to do as a lawyer, right? It's not going to be applauded as, oh my God, you're the most the brightest guy ever. Second, you know, in terms of gratitude, human beings, unfortunately, are in some respects self-centered and they're not necessarily always thinking about you and clients, especially, right? 
clients is clients. And I've had some very grateful clients, but I've also had a lot of clients that quite frankly, their attitude is they're right. Uh, they're in a bad situation, but they're in a bad situation because the other side is wrong. And so it's not a matter of being grateful that you're rescuing them from something that they created for themselves. It's more that you're simply a tool that they have to use and unfortunately spend a bunch of money on to, to stop being victimized. And so you're not going to, you're not going to get that sort of thing. You will get it eventually. Uh, you'll get all of that and you'll get it in spades, but you'll get it by focusing on focusing outwardly, focusing on, you know, learning your craft and, and becoming uh, very self-critical, um, not assuming that you know what you're doing, watching other people and finding the ones that seem to have a lot of success and then emulating them, steal their act, go ahead. That's, I've done that all my entire career. I've built everything I have out of watching other people and going, it, you know, it's kind of, the rubric is as follows for me. It's, I watch somebody and I see if what they're doing I apologize. My phone's going off. I watch people and I see if what they're doing is successful, right? Is it working? Um, are they appealing to people? Are they getting good results? And then I think to myself, okay, but even though that's successful, could I do it? Am I capable of emulating that? And if I decide that, yes, I am, I steal it. I steal it for my own act. And, and it works really well. I, I think if you focus on, again, building your craft and you focus on caring about your clients and caring about your coworkers and caring about other people and helping them, making them all look good, feel good, do better at what they're doing, all of that other stuff, all the other recognition that you need, uh, the thankfulness, the gratefulness, it's all going to come. It's all going to be there, but it, not until you get outside of worrying about yourself and start worrying about other people. Thank you, Bill. And this has been such a valuable podcast for me personally i've taken so much away and i really appreciate that and gideon i'd love to to turn the question to you just building off what bill said and we've had there's been so much good advice ideas discussed today where do you think about building your legal career at this stage has there been any advice you've been given about how to think about building those legal skills that bill alluded to that's a great question so i think the this kind of answers this recent question and then the question earlier you asked what young lawyers spend too much time doing. I think lawyers, young lawyers and law students should spend more time hanging out with and interacting with non-lawyers have a tendency to be very insular. If you've ever been to a party with law school students and their spouses, you'll see the spouses sitting in the corner and the lawyer and the future lawyers or current lawyers amongst themselves arguing about some doctrine or whatever. I think the job is to communicate with the public essentially. We're trying to convince our job is to interact with the jury and present our our version of the facts and the law in a way that, that appeals to them. And that, that makes it sound kind of transactional. You should hang out with other kinds of uh, other people and other aspects of life. But I think it also just makes you a, a more interesting person. Don't just be interested in law, essentially. I don't think anybody is really just interested in law and people who say they are, they're not. I think you have to be interested in a broad range of things. As far as advice I've gotten that helps me think about how to steer my career and my skills, Bill basically just laid it out for you. It's um, the job is about the client. And the measure of my success in the job is the measure of the outcome uh, for the client. And that's all I really think about. Um, the other thing is, uh, I think there's a tendency coming out of law school to want to show everybody how good you are at issue spotting. Like you're taught in law school 
name every single legal problem you can think of in on this piece of paper. But in a law firm, they, you don't, nobody cares how many legal issues you can think of. They're, you're not, the job is not to identify fires. The, I, the job is to figure out how to put them out. So that's, the, that's where you want to focus. And uh, it's a much harder and much more, it's a more laborious effort to identify the problems and then the solutions. But that's where you got to focus. Hey, Jacob, can I ask you a question? You get to talk to all kinds of cool people and people that are way, way smarter than me. So I'd really like to hear what's the best piece of advice that you have picked up from these interviews that you have then integrated into your life and practice? That's that's a great question, Bill. And it's hard to compare them because I find every piece of advice is unique and most of them are applicable in different situations. So as any lawyer, it depends. But one that stands out to me is one that was said by a couple guests, but particularly uh, Preston Byrne mentioned it in one of the episodes where he said, when you're a young lawyer and really at every stage in your career, there's a different set of skills you need to learn. When you're a young lawyer, you don't need to be the strategy person. You don't need to be the big picture person you have a chance to build these foundational skills, such as writing concisely, that include really making sure your attention to detail is second to none. You don't make mistakes, essentially. And taking pride in the work you do and seeing that it might not feel like valuable work because you're not giving an hour-long presentation in front of a jury on the particular issues. But what you're doing is you're building that bedrock and that foundation that those other lawyers and those other individuals have already done. But it takes a tremendous amount of work to get to that point. And when I was going through articling, there were times where that was probably my mistake was I was focusing too much on how mundane the work I'm doing is and how really easy it felt and simple. And I went to school for three years for this. I, I could have <laughs> done this 10 years ago when I was 12. You know, well, I'm, not, I'm a bit older than that now, but you, you get my point. And so to me, that's something that really stuck with me is how you do anything is how you do everything. And if you're going to do a small task that might seem almost beneath you, you're going to do it to the best of your abilities, and then you can A, sleep at night, but B, you're going to build off that and that'll have a compounding effect through the rest of your life. And so to me, it's building that into everything I do. If I'm going to do something, how can I do it to the best of my abilities? With the caveat that sometimes you have to sacrifice the quality just to get it done. And there's some things the quality doesn't matter and you have to be able to pick those out. But to me, the biggest thing is really just bringing quality into everything you do to build that foundation. And then Bill, I'd love to, to turn it back to you. You've spoken about a few things you've learned, but is there any piece of advice outside of your legal career that you were given early on that shaped who you've become? Man, I have to throw it back to, again, the same mentor I already mentioned to you, who very early told me that you only have one thing and it's your reputation and that's your asset. Guard it. You know, that's, that's the most important thing you can protect because um, it's really all you have. And I think that can be applicable in so many different circumstances all day long, you know. Jacob, I don't know about you, but I, the one thing that I was shocked at becoming a lawyer was how often, how infrequently I used what I learned in most classes, but how frequently I used what I learned in my ethics course. We are confronted all of the time with ethics issues. You know, we, we, we hit that fork in the road, like sometimes multiple times a day where you go, okay, 
I could go this direction or I could go this direction. What do I do? I have a potential conflict here. I could decide that conflict is not a problem. I could decide it is an issue. I could raise it with the client. I could not raise it with the client. And we're constantly being called on to, to make those sorts of decisions. Well, that guiding principle that my reputation is all I have makes some of those decisions really easy. It really does. And those are tough decisions sometimes. But if you're guided by that sort of single principle, I, I don't think you're going to go wrong. I, I think you're almost always going to make the exact right decision. And you're going to know when you don't know the answer, you need to consult with someone else. You're also going to figure that part out because you're not going to feel like I'm protecting my my reputation here. Uh, I'm just not confident yet, so I need to go check that. Um, so that's probably the the other little piece of advice I've been given along the way that applies to everything in life, not just to, to what I do as a lawyer, but I think it really helps in, in this career field. Oh, and it ties in perfectly to what you mentioned before about the values with honesty, transparency, doing the right thing. Reputation is built off of those foundations. And w one thing that just came to mind to me was, I don't know if you either of you have seen the show Narcos about Pablo so. Escobar. And w my biggest takeaway from that was here's a guy who at one point was arguably one of the wealthiest people in the world. And his life was looking over his shoulder. There is no benefit to doing the wrong thing because number one, you'll know in your gut. And number two, you'll have to be worried for the rest of your life where say you're not paying your taxes every year. It's, am I going to get caught? Am I going to get caught? And that is almost priceless that there's no cost that you should sacrifice the peace of mind for something like that. So I'm, I'm really glad you raised the point about reputation because I think that builds off it. And I, I think we really are collections of our habits and, and something like reputation, it comes from honoring your word, being honest with people, always going the extra mile when you can to help someone else out. But are there any habits that you consciously brought into your career, Bill, that have helped you be successful over a long period of time or some things that you wanted to bring in, but are difficult and you're, and you're doing your right. best to bring in. I think the one habit that I will always be trying to develop, Jacob, that I, I have not gotten there yet. And someday, maybe 10 years from now, uh, you know, I, I'll be able to say that I've, I've mastered this. It's, it's the, exactly what I was alluding to before I was talking about before, which is getting to know every possible fact that I can uh, about the things that I'm working on as early as possible. I can tell you, I've done, I can't tell you how many times I've been preparing for a trial or a major hearing or an oral argument in appellate court. And I'm looking over the record and I suddenly see something that just smacks me upside the head and says, oh, geez, that's a really important, I mean, I could really use that. That's a really important fact. Now, fortunately, I'm doing that preparation and so it's not too late. And I can, and I can usually find a way to, okay, I can, I can, in fact, sometimes I've pivoted entirely from what I was thinking I'd be doing at the, at the 11th hour because I suddenly realized something in the record that I hadn't quite noticed before or paid much attention to before. And so I think that's the habit that I would like to develop better is never allow myself to not exhaust all of the facts that I can gather early. I, I don't just because of number one, lack of self-discipline, but also I allow too many things to get on the plate. And that what I'm talking about, that habit requires a lot of time and concentration, a lot of big blocks of time that you can devote to one thing. But you know, it's something I recognize the value in. It's something I try to do. It's something I preach to people like Gideon 
that you really got to study that stuff because you're going to be amazed what you find. Sometimes you find little gems that turn out to be the whole bedrock of your, of your case. So that, I guess that would be the one habit that I, 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 I don't have, uh, I haven't developed well enough, but I need to. It's such a good reminder because I think when, when you leave law school, you have all the facts of the case that were in the case you were given for the case study for the exam, for example. And so your whole idea is building out the research. It's exhausting the research. And I think many times when you're doing your litigation work, you say, okay, these are the facts. I heard them once. That's it. Now I need to be exhaustive on the research front. And it's such a good reminder to say, well, if you don't have the facts right, or if you're missing that diamond in the rough that you need, you're really wasting your time. That's a great point, Bill. I, I was just going to say that the one, the one thing that it, where it constantly comes up is it, it may not be a, it's, it's not really a question necessarily of, of um, not getting exposure to all the facts early on. I think mean, you, you just alluded to the fact, Jacob, that, you know, sometimes you'd, okay, you say, I've heard it once. I, I now know what the facts are. No, you don't, because you didn't receive them in context of the rest of the case, right? Um, and so if you've, if maybe actually the habit I need to develop better is, is to regularly go back over the facts, because oftentimes you'll find nuances, for example, in a contract. All of a sudden, you'll see language in a particular contract and you'll realize the significance of it. Not You wouldn't have realized it when you first read the contract. But now that you've deposed one of the parties who negotiated that contract and you've heard them talk about what their expectations were and what their requirements were and what their objectives were, now all of a sudden you've picked up things where you say, oh, wait a minute. You know what? This language is completely inconsistent with the story that this person's trying to tell. Completely inconsistent with it. Yeah, that's where I, I, I think that you know you have to develop a real discipline to re-engaging yourself with the facts and the documents and the records um, as you go through the process. Uh, and it'll, it'll bring complete new meaning sometimes to old facts that you thought you heard once, but you didn't hear them the right way. Yeah, and I think we often have a tendency to think of it as a checkbox, right? Okay know the facts next onto the next one. And then you want to just keep going, but sometimes you have to go back. And I find with writing, the biggest benefit is printing it out, rereading it multiple times, because that is when you notice the small things that you might've skimmed over before. Right. And facts of a case are, are very similar in that respect. Gideon, to, to turn the habits question to you, and I, I'm fascinated by habits because I think if we can instill regular routines into our career, we're going to be better off in the long run, regardless of how each day particularly goes. Like one day you might miss it, one day you you might not. Are there habits that you've seen Bill or you've seen other lawyers build into their practice that they might not even be cognizant of because it's just the routine, it's what they do, that you've really seen and, and want to build because you see the value in them? Off the top of my head, I can think of a few. I don't know if this is necessarily a habit in, in the sense you mean, but Bill is very good at, well, he's an exceptional listener, right? So he, when he's talking to a client, I can just tell he's in the moment talking to the client and he's, and that's what he's doing. And he's making it very clear how seriously he takes whatever the client or whoever he's talking to, how seriously he takes them and what they have to say. And we deal with a lot of cases. There's a lot of complex and high dollar disputes going on. But every single client gets from Bill this same 
serious focus and attention. So that's that's one habit. As far as myself, I try to make a daily habit of meditation. And the reason is that it it gives you the ability to notice your own ego. I'm naturally trying to learn from everybody I meet at all times, from the, the security guy downstairs to the staff in the office to the associates, everybody, everybody I meet, I feel like I can learn something from. Um, and what meditation gives you is the ability to just take your ego out of it and say, I'm probably wrong. If you go into every interaction thinking there's a chance I'm probably wrong here, you can be more self-critical and the habit of meditation really gives you this calmness in the face of somebody disagreeing with you or trying to teach you something. So I accept all all incoming knowledge from all sources. And, and I can I can verify that that's absolutely true. He does, actually. And it's uh, it's palpable. You can see it. Uh, Jacob, um, Gideon raised the point that I would just like to reiterate that I probably should I replace one of my earlier answers with, um, I don't know which one, uh, but um, the best trial lawyers, I've, I've learned over time, the best trial lawyers are the best listeners, okay? Um, and this is a little piece of advice for people out there who are looking for a trial lawyer, right? If someone is in need of somebody, or maybe they're an in-house attorney who has to hire outside counsel. Um, the first time you meet with any litigator, uh, and by the way, we don't call ourselves litigators. We call ourselves trial attorneys because that's ultimately what we do and what we enjoy. And litigation to me has a context of make work that I'm doing a bunch of stuff that yeah, I get to bill you for, but it really doesn't have, it's not, it's not goal oriented always. And, and we're goal oriented, but if you're meeting with somebody for the first time who purports to be a trial attorney, if they dominate the conversation, like we're dominating this conversation, just, just turn away. That's not what you want. You want somebody, especially if it's somebody who is new to you, new to your problem, you want someone who's asking questions and listening. That makes all the difference in the world. Someone who thinks that they have the answers already, that they can figure out how to handle your problem without knowing every last detail you want you want to tell them that you think is important, not likely to be the best trial attorney. Uh, you want to measure somebody by how, you know, how carefully they are listening to what you have to say. That doesn't mean that, you know, when they're done listening, that they have to agree with everything you've said or your perspective on things. They may say, well, that's great, but you know, I think that the, your objective really should be over here because that's what we can achieve. I mean, they may have that, but that's what you're paying them for. But if they're just there to, to lecture you about things and to tell you about how they would handle your case before they really know all about it, um, that's, a, that's a red flag. Absolutely. And I think it applies in the commercial context as well. When a client first comes in, you want to understand their business and let them explain to you the product, the issue, whatever it is you're being involved for. To build that understanding takes tremendous patience and listening skills that I've always been impressed with trial lawyers. I don't know why. It seems like they have better listening skills than commercial lawyers. No offense to the commercial lawyers. No, no. Offense, offense to the commercial <laughs> lawyers. <laughs> and I've just noticed even the benefit of space where the client will explain their situation and then the lawyer will sit back and sit in silence. And then the story will continue after a couple seconds. It's almost this nonverbal cue to keep talking. It's okay. I'm still listening. That can be really difficult for some people. Hey, Jacob, I tell all of my witnesses, right? Anyone who I am going to be uh, uh, defending in a deposition or, or a trial, um, 
I, I tell them that, hey, here's a, a, a just expected lawyer trick, silence. If I've asked you a question and you've not given me what I want to hear yet, I know if I just remain silent, you are going to fill that silence <laughs> with something. And chances are, it may be something that I can use. And you have to train witnesses that don't fall for the silence. If you've answered the question, you've answered the question. I mean, you have to let them understand that they, you know, their job is to answer the question, not to, uh, you know, feel uncomfortable with that, that silence. But that silence is an incredibly powerful technique. And it's great to use, again, to get information out of a client. Oftentimes, clients come to us and, you know, frankly, when they come to us, they're stressed. Um, they're either, they've either been sued. Um, and they're not happy about it. And they're frightened about it, and they're they're worried, or something bad has happened to them, and they need to get relief, but they need to get it because something bad has happened to them, and they're feeling a lot of anxiety and stress. Oftentimes, they're feeling mixed emotions about whether they should feel guilty. You know, did they make a mistake? Are they really at fault? Are they really a victim here? Or are they, you know, potentially the person who really caused the problem? Um, that means that they may not be comfortable being totally open with you, right? They may hold back. In fact, they frequently will hold back. That silence works wonders. Just let them feel, the, you know, feel the, uh, the, the, the it's, it's sort of an uncomfortable feeling, right? Where they feel like, okay, well, I guess what I'm being, what's being signaled here is I haven't given all the information that I have. And, oh, you know what? They're right. I have it. Here's some more, you know, it's, a great communication technique. I was going to try it there for a second. See, uh, <laughs> I know you're see not how long me. I could go. You're not get me on it, Jacob. <laughs> I thought I'd try it, but uh, well, I, I have to say, you know, starting this podcast and having people like you, Bill and, and Gideon, join makes me really grateful because I, I'm not sure without the podcast if we'd even be having this conversation. And I personally took away. A tremendous amount and really am grateful for both of you for taking the time to speak with me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you both so much for being so generous with your time and for a great conversation. Well, you're really skilled at what you do, Jacob, and keep doing it because our industry and quite frankly, the broader world needs that. You know, we need people discussing these sorts of things, sharing advice. I think the most brilliant thing about the internet, the most glorious thing about it is that it brings to us other people's advice that we never would have had access to ever before. And it's incredibly valuable, insightful stuff that we can always find and really, really helpful stuff out there. And I, you're, you're part of that and you're, you're obviously going to be a much bigger part of it as you go along. Cause you're really good at it. Likewise, Jacob, it was, it was really a pleasure to be here. And uh, I've been a big fan of yours since the beginning. So it's an honor to be here in a long line of really interesting and, and talented and successful guests. So thank you for having us. My pleasure. And hopefully we'll do a part two sometime. If I'm ever in Arizona, we'll have to grab lunch or dinner. Uh, I'll probably come when it's a Canadian winter and then I yeah. get the, the better weather uh, down where you guys are. But yeah, thanks again. Really appreciate this. For anyone who's listening and, and wants to maybe ask some follow-up questions or just wants to say hello, where would the best place to reach both of you? And maybe Bill, you can start and then Gideon, you can share. Sure. First of all, uh, you can always just call the office. Uh, it's Richards and Moskowitz. We're in Phoenix. We have a, a decent web presence, so you can find our, our webpage there if you want to learn more about us, or uh, you can check out, um, I think we have you know a lot of uh, recent, more recent LinkedIn activity that you know, Gideon is responsible for, where we will post items of interest and things that are happening with the firm, um, but you can also just uh, give us a call. 
at 602-595-7800 is our phone number. Um, that's also on the website. And you can also uh, email us through the website as well. Um, and we do have uh, one thing that we do do, Jacob, is we have uh, a pretty immediate response from at least a staff member. Um, they're always monitoring incoming traffic. Uh, we do get a lot, um, but uh, we are we kind of have a rule that, you know, someone will be in touch with you very, very shortly um, to follow up one way or the other. Yeah, all the same ways you, you can reach me. Oh, sorry, Jacob. You can reach me at the same places and uh, also on Twitter. And we'll link everything in the show notes below, the website for Richards Moskowitz, as well as Gideon's Twitter and everything we discussed today. Thank you both so much. Is there anything you'd want to add? Oh, Jacob, I uh, have learned and I've told all the attorneys that work for us that, you know, one of the most valuable uh, things that I think a lot of attorneys don't take advantage of is, is networking with other smart attorneys. I have found that the legal community, particularly where we live, is incredibly open to basically just brainstorming about stuff. And so I know a lot of great attorneys out there that I just call to, to get their ideas when I'm stumped with something or I'm encountering something new. Um, or if I've, I've tried and failed with one of my standard, my standard shtick is not working, you know, I'll, I'll tap their brain and, and get their ideas. Um, I encourage people to do that with us. Um, I know sometimes people, other attorneys are afraid that, well, I'm calling someone who's really busy and their time is money and, and all that. No, I, I believe that we owe each other that sort of feedback. And so if you want to call and get an hour of my time to talk over an issue, as long as I don't have a conflict of some kind that would prevent me from talking to you about it, you know, I'm, I'm more than willing to you know, share thoughts, uh, ideas, um, ask a lot of questions, probably. Uh, that, I think that's a really valuable thing that we attorneys do for each other. And it's part of, again, it's part of our kind of improving our uh, quality of service uh, that we provide to our client communities that I think we just all owe each other and more than happy to field questions from, from practitioners for a little free, little free input um, at any point. Thank you, Bill. That's really kind of you. And I think it's a win-win for everyone involved when attorneys discuss, especially crypto-related issues, that we'll, we're going to see regulation on the horizon. And if we can come up with coherent answers, coherent solutions, and present them in a coherent manner, it, it'll be a benefit for the industry at large and for the world at large as well. So thank you both for taking the time. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Jacob. All right. Thanks, Jake.